0: Shut up, and sit down. You're listening to The Bridge. Keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host,
1: John Lund. Hello everyone, you're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast bringing you this sports show. What's it like being the radio voice of a minor league baseball team? We'll talk about that and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on episode 78 of The Bridge. Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge, coming to you live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern time to bring you the best and brightest of the sports world. That's right, The Bridge is live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, though the show is technically pre-recorded. If you do miss the live show, the podcast version of The Bridge is available 48 hours after the initial broadcast, which means you can find the newest episode and additional content from the show on Friday nights on iTunes under The Bridge Sports Podcast or on my website at londonbridge.com. I'll save all the ways you can listen to The Bridge and where you can find the show until the end of this latest installment. If anything, you can call in or text the show 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Contact the show with your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. All right, let's get into the fun stuff. Give me the siren it's been 13 long years since the movie dodgeball a true underdog story introduced us to espn eight the ocho a fictitious network known for broadcasting any and all obscure sports The Ocho is a reference that remains alive in sports broadcasting lore even to today, and thankfully, ESPN made what was once a dream a reality, at least for one day. It's time for the number one news anchor parody segment in sports radio. Here's this week's edition of Sports News Read Like Real News. One could argue that Dodgeball, a true underdog story, is one of the greatest fictitious sports movies of all time. But this is not the time nor the place for that argument. Instead, we must pay homage to one of the highlights from that film in the creation of ESPN 8, The Ocho, the finest and seldom seen sports, such as this. A city built upon sand, broken dreams, and $5 lobster. A city where you can get a happy ending, but only if you pay a little extra. A city home to a sporting event greater than the World Cup, World Series, and World War II combined. Live! Las Vegas International Dodgeball Open here on ESPN 8. The Ocho, bringing you the finest and seldom seen sports from around the globe since 1999. If it's almost a sport, we've got it here. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this year's annual Las Vegas International Dodgeball Open, brought to you exclusively here on ESPN 8. The Ocho. The Ocho became part of sports broadcasting lore and is often referenced when discussing such backyard games like Cornhole, Can Jam, or Beer Pong. Some longed for the days when ESPN 8 would become a reality. Decades after ESPN originally made its bones in the wee hours of the morning, showing some of the more unpopular sports from around the world. Thankfully, ESPN listened and made dreams come true at least for one day. On August 8th, 8-8 for you math nerds, ESPN 8 hit televisions across this beautiful country on ESPNU. Even implementing the voice of that SportsCenter guy to promote the extravaganza.
0: You're watching a special presentation of ESPN 8, The Ocho
2: on espnu
1: the day kicked off at midnight with the 2016 american disc golf championship other sports throughout the day included roller derby trampoline dodgeball the firefighters world challenge comedy darts arm wrestling moxie games including the rock paper scissors championship Street Fighter, the U.S. Open Ultimate Championship, and the 2017 Championship of Bags, which perhaps fueled this revival when Cornhole became must-see television a couple of weeks back as filler on ESPN2. The question is, was the Ocho a success? It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him was it ever, with social media leading one to believe that it might have been the greatest day in sports broadcasting history. And humor aside, the athletes taking part in the events covered throughout the day do devote a large part of their lives to what many think to be nonsensical sports. In a world where those who were once deemed as nerds or weirdos can make careers from playing video games or flying drones, why not have a world where a game of dodgeball can be watched from the comforts of your couch? In fact, we need more. Who wouldn't want to watch a high-stakes game of Connect Four or Chutes and Ladders? or take sides to cheer on the participants of a rousing round of Red Rover, Red Rover. In fact, old Nickelodeon reboots should also be included in the next revitalization of the Ocho. The question is, would you watch?
0: The choices are yours and yours alone. Good luck.
1: I'm John Lund for Sports News, Red Like Real News. Let's take a quick break to practice our dodgeball skills.
2: Dodge, duck, dip, dive, and dodge. Till next time, this is Patches O'Houlihan saying take care of your balls and they'll take care of you.
1: When we come back, we'll talk to a sports broadcaster about being the voice of minor league baseball and college athletics. We'll be right back on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. As you heard earlier in the show, you can call in or text in to The Bridge at 929-BRIDGE7. That's 929-274-3437. Leave a voicemail or text your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. Now we do like to pose a question each show to help give you the urge to call in or text in to The Bridge. This week we want to know, what is your favorite children's game and why? some quick housekeeping for what's coming up we've got five minutes in the film room to close out the show after our interview with this week's guest but before we get into that i wanted to talk about flag and anthem summer is winding down but you can still look good in the weeks remaining we're surely in for a few more warm weekends to at least head out to the beach one last time flag and anthem is men's clothing for guys with an expensive feel at an affordable price I'm busy enough and the last thing I want to do when shopping for clothes online is having to choose between price and quality and shipping and fit and thankfully Flag and Anthem eliminates all of that. They've got all sorts of options available from shirts and tees to pants and shorts along with featured outfits as well for each season. Go to flagandanthem.com and use discount code THEBRIDGE at checkout to receive 20% off your order. They also have free shipping and free returns, so you'll be sure to find the best fit for you. That's flagandanthem.com. Discount code THEBRIDGE to receive 20% off your order. Now to this week's guest in Scott Kornberg, the radio voice of the Myrtle Beach Pelicans, the Class A Advanced Affiliate of the Chicago Cubs, and also the radio voice of the Western Illinois University football and men's basketball teams, Scott and I met through a mutual friend of ours a couple of years back and I actually had the pleasure of seeing him in action this summer when he welcomed me into the broadcast booth during a Pelicans game, which actually sparked a five or six run rally while we were up there. So I'm glad to be of help. Scott has been all over the sports media landscape, from his work at college to internships and full-time opportunities as well, so it was great to talk about that in getting him to where he is today, how he decided this was all something he wanted to do, some of what goes into broadcasting a baseball game and covering a team, and much more. You can follow Scott on Twitter. He's at Scott Kornberg. That's S-C-O-T-T-K-O-R-N-B-E-R-G and without further ado, let's get into that interview. We're here with Scott Kornberg. He is the radio voice of the Myrtle Beach Pelicans, the Class A advance affiliate of the Chicago Cubs, along with being the voice of the Western Illinois University football and men's basketball team. Scott, thanks so much for joining the show.
2: How are you? i'm great john thank you very much for having me on i appreciate it
1: not a problem at all this is something we've been talking about or wanting to do for about a year or so now and since i got the chance to see you in action while on vacation last month in myrtle beach Why not catch up three weeks from when we last were with each other and see what we can do? And I wanted to get started with you by turning back the clocks a little bit. Many broadcasters or members of the sports media have a aha moment of sorts in knowing that they want to get into this industry or it's something they want to pursue. When did you first get the feeling that broadcast journalism and the like was something that you wanted to get into?
2: Well, I don't know if it was when um, and I was aware that broadcast journalism was a thing, but when I was really young, apparently like baby young, like I would imitate the announcers, like when I could first talk at like one, one and a half years old. And uh, so I guess I was really into it then. I don't remember that, obviously. But when I was growing up, um, pretty soon into my middle school years, I had a feeling that I probably couldn't play professional baseball or football or basketball and I was really fortunate because we lived in the same town as Sports Illustrated baseball writer Tom Verducci and he was my brother's baseball coach so my dad was like well you know you kind of like announcing in the backyard and you've liked it forever why don't you talk to him about what it's like to work in sports and I did and uh, I had a feeling that I would just like broadcasting more than writing and so uh, just through talking with him, and then getting a chance to do it a, just a tiny bit for a few games in high school, I had a pretty good feeling that I was going to be wanting to do that for my career in college. And fortunately, I went to a really good one where they had a great broadcast journalism school, and it really set me up uh, at least well in the early part of my career so far.
1: Was he part of your inspiration to get started? That's quite an amazing name to get a chance to speak with at such a young age. Or were there also maybe other radio shows or some broadcast announcers as well that might have sparked your interest?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, definitely growing up. um, I mean, this is pre when every baseball game was on the radio. Me and my dad would listen to the Mets on the radio all the time growing up in New Jersey. And so I loved Gary Cohen. I mean, this is when he was with WFAN. Then he moved to SNY, and I loved uh, Gary. And then Howie Rose, of course. Um, I didn't discover Vince Scully until later, but he's probably my biggest broadcasting idol now. Um, other favorites, Ian Eagle. I think he used to call the Jets at some point, uh, maybe on the radio. I know he does the Nets, and I feel like I listen to him a lot on Westwood One, and, Bob was choosing with the Jets on the radio has always been an inspiration. So, I mean, a lot of the, the New York broadcasters, they're so good. I was fortunate that growing up there, I was always listening to somebody really good and especially my favorite teams just happened to have great ones. So I I was very lucky to have that and just, you know, driving to a lot of games, we always had the radio on. So Mike and the Mad Dog wasn't play by play, but my dad and I have a lot of memories of listening, listening to Mike and the Mad Dog and, uh, I mean, even other like national broadcasters like Dave Sims comes to mind. as a really good one that I remember from being pretty young and just his enthusiasm and excitement for calling games on Westwood One. So I'd probably say those guys. And I discovered Vince Scully later. I was in college, and I remember we had just got an MLB network, and I went home for like spring break or summer break or something, and uh, flipping through channels one night. And I'd never heard of them before because this is, again, pre-MLB at bat. I just got in MLB Network, and I remember, uh, you know, going through the guide and seeing the Dodgers were on MLB Network, and I was like, ah, oh, what the heck? I'll put on this Vince Scully guy who'll probably stink, and that was literally my thoughts. And then I turned it on, and the game was in commercial, and they come back, and they just showed a full moon, and he didn't say anything at first, and then all of a sudden he goes. Isn't it amazing we put a man up there? <laughs> and then I was hooked from there, and I have you know listened to him until he retired last year, like religiously, and now I really like John Miller a lot too with the Giants and Pat Hughes with the Cubs, Len Castro with the Cubs, and he's a tremendous guy and an incredible broadcaster. Uh, so, you know, I'm trying to diversify a little bit too, but definitely my roots are in that New York area.
1: And that's definitely something that helps – a ton when it comes to just trying to find your voice, getting to hear those different voices that have passed through there. Doesn't hurt at all. And you mentioned college, which would be you graduating from the University of Maryland. And we chatted briefly before coming on here that as a Duke fan, I was lucky enough or maybe unlucky enough to some to get to see Duke play Maryland back in those ACC rivalry days. Thankfully, Duke won the game and I came away from the game unscathed as well. So, all in all, it was a great trip. <laughs> to college park but in general for you just as a sports fan it probably had to be incredibly exciting to get to watch those teams that play at maryland as well as then moving on to getting to cover them for different play-by-play opportunities you had with the radio station what was that experience like not only being able to enjoy some of the games as a fan but then also being able to cover many of the sports that they offer as well
2: well congratulations on making it out alive there first of all uh I think Maryland basketball, I don't know, I love the passion of it. It probably comes from Gary Williams. I think a lot of the fan base would say the same thing. So uh, I mean I love being a fan for games, so we had like student radio and you had crews and um you know you wouldn't get, you wouldn't have to call every single game because there was a lot of people who wanted to call the game so you'd rotate. And fortunately I was in charge by the time I was calling the men's basketball games as a senior and so I would Purposely put myself on the broadcast for like either not so big ACC games at the time Maryland was in the ACC and or uh, non conference games or just on the road and then when like, I could be a fan for the big games at home. But uh, anyway, it, it was a great place to go to school because I remember going to a lot of different schools and everyone has their different philosophy and some of them said like, well, you can't uh, you know be on the air until your junior year. And I didn't really like that very much, uh, even though they thought that, um, and maybe other people agree with this, I don't know, that it's good to learn behind the camera before going in front. But Maryland's philosophy was, uh, you need to learn by doing, and that's something I do believe in and have for my entire life. And uh, I remember going on a campus visit with my mom, and then later my dad, and we went to the student radio station, WMUC Sports, and they were like, yeah. You know, the first week here on campus, you could have your own radio show, and I was like, "What? First week of campus? First week of being at school?" And so uh, that was a big sell for me. And um, their journalism school is really, really good. And they also preached like, "Hey, you're going to go out and shoot stories and interview people, and you're going to do this when you're young, and you're going to, you know, look back and you're going to learn. We're going to teach you how to be better at these things." But we want you to to get this experience early on because we believe that the only way to get better uh, is to actually do the things that you're, you're going to have to do in the field instead of just us teaching you and kind of lecturing you about it. And that was important to me. So I remember going there uh, as a freshman and literally the first week of campus, I had a college radio show with my buddy, uh, Luke and Matt, and we held the show uh, for all four years and we extended the hours and whatever. And. I got involved with, like, the news crew, and so I was covering the men's basketball team as a freshman, and that was a big shock for sure. Uh, I don't know if I was ready for it, but, again, you learn by your mistakes. I remember the first time I ever covered a basketball game at Maryland, I went to Gary Williams' post-game press conference, and this is a guy who was in the Hall of Fame. He's one of the best coaches ever. And I remember just sitting there being like, like, oh, my God, that's Gary Williams. And I couldn't even ask a question because, I was almost paralyzed by the fact that, you know, here's this amazing coach who's had this incredible history. And obviously this is my alma mater. And when you're 18 years old, you're probably a little bit blind to that as well. But then, um, you know, you get better. And and as a junior, um, he retired. And I remember I I asked him a few questions at his press conference, including the last one in that retirement press conference. So I thought that was kind of cool. And um, eventually I was able to start – covering uh, sports with play-by-play, so that was Maryland softball as a freshman in my spring semester. Then it was soccer, women's basketball, and a little bit of softball and baseball, eventually football, men's basketball, and baseball all the way through. So I was just blessed that there was a lot of good people who worked above me that were willing to take me under their wing and teach me, and that they're willing to put up with my mistakes early on, both academically in the classroom. So many good professors come to mind and good teachers and An amazing Dean, uh, Olive Reed, uh, so many other students who are older than me at the radio station who uh, taught me like what to do and what to say and how to prepare. And I, you know, a lot of other great internships I was fortunate to get as well that kind of taught me professional sports and how these professional people do it. And, uh, you know, I've just been really lucky. Maryland was a great place because it's a big school, because there's so much passion for the school from the student body, because it's a college town and also because it's right next to Washington, D.C. and Baltimore, and so you have access to do internships and work in those two cities while you're in school instead of waiting for winter or summer break. And it was just, in my opinion, it's the perfect school in the world, and I was very fortunate to go there.
1: Before hitting on those internships, I'll also say that particular game I was at was when they dedicated the court to Gary Williams. So... I also had the same feeling of, wow, that's Gary Williams stepping onto the court. And then, unfortunately, for probably 90% of the people in attendance, Duke won the game and sort of spoiled the evening. So that's where I was for my (laughs) first Maryland game. So that's definitely something that was very memorable for a myriad of different reasons. And you mentioned the internships you were able to get from going to Maryland and being around the East Coast, which stems from... WFAN, Sirius XM, NBC Sports as well, just to name a few. What type of impact did those experiences have on you to walk in the same halls as some of the idols that you've already mentioned and getting to learn from some of the greats that also are working at those places as well?
2: Well, eye-opening because, um, and a huge impact because you really see how those guys prepare. And Bob Costas, for example, like to see him go over a script and scrutinize every word of every sentence before a show, I mean, that makes an impact. And to see Mike Francesa and and get to kind of see how he handles his show, I mean, whether you love him or you hate him, he's obviously extremely successful at what he does Um, and the way he prepared. Again, religious preparation for all these things and WTOP was a little bit different um, where I worked, now that was probably my favorite one because they were like, all right, one night shoot free this week. And I'd say, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or whatever it was. And whatever sporting event was around in DC and Baltimore, I mean, they would give me a credential, and, and I kind of got to see how those reporters interacted with athletes, which is, I think, also very important. Um, and how they treated them, uh, how they were able to, to build trust, to hopefully build a relationship to, to tell a story later on. So, I mean, these are the best of the best. New York, Washington, D.C., Baltimore, three of the best sports markets in the nation. And uh, to kind of watch those guys and then have them, some of them, teach me, uh, you know, sort of their techniques. I mean, absolutely huge that things I still do today that I learned from those internships.
1: That led you to a gig doing play-by-play for the High Point Thomasville High Toms play-by-play at Colgate University. This is going probably about four years back, which then stemmed into several more broadcasting opportunities, and it's probably easier to have you fill in those blanks rather than me. How did you end up there in your first professional gig, if you will? And then could you give the Cliff Notes version of sorts of where you are now covering baseball and then both football and basketball?
2: Well, uh, Cliff Notes version would be I just was sending a lot of emails to a lot of teams. And then the High Times owner called me out of the blue when I was a senior, I think in like October or maybe November, and he hired me. Uh, like on the spot, like he uh, interviewed me. He said, I, "I got your application and your some of your calls, and um, you know I like this, this, and this." And he interviewed me on the spot, and then a couple of days later, he, um, after he had called a couple of references, I, I guess he had felt comfortable enough to hire me. So actually, it's funny because their season ended uh, four years ago today on a walk-off wild pitch in the playoffs. So I came up with my time hop today. So I was thinking about the high times a little bit, and then. And there, are similar, just getting lucky. People really liking me to go to Colgate, Quad Cities, and then being in the right place in the right time for Western Illinois. And uh, just fortunate that I'll be at Western for my fourth year to call their football and men's basketball games. I can't say enough about the leadership they have there. The way they treat me is exceptional. Um, and that school is just remarkable in so many ways. And I've worked with so many incredible people in their athletic department who are. Either still there or who have moved on to even bigger schools to help them to realize their dreams. So, Western Illinois is amazing, and so are the Chicago Cubs and the Myrtle Beach Pelicans. And I'm just really fortunate that I can make it all work to get paid to watch sports and talk for a living. It really, I'm very, very lucky.
1: You've covered almost every sport under the sun, it seems, through college and professional levels. Do you have a favorite sport, maybe one you would like to pursue more in the future, or are you more than comfortable doing what you're able to do now and getting to cover a myriad of sports, whatever really has been available?
2: Um, My favorite sport is baseball. A lot of people, they say, how do you watch our season's 140 games plus the playoffs? How do you watch baseball that much? But if I wasn't working in baseball, I'd just go home and watch it on TV or listen to it on the radio. And... Or go to the game every night. Anyway, so I mean, I love watching baseball, and I love the rhythm of it. I love the feel of the game. I love how you can't get too high or too low because you got to play again the next day. I love how people freak out in the beginning of the season, their fans, because uh, teams in a losing streak, and then you work in baseball and you realize the players that there's okay, whatever, we'll get them again the next day. And uh, right now for the Pelicans, it's sort of the same thing. Right now, people are freaking out. They've struggled a little bit of late, but it's a long season and every team goes through highs and lows. I also love basketball. I like the rhythm. I talk about the rhythm of baseball. It's a very different rhythm of basketball. It's easy to get into a flow. Um, It's kind of neat. There's a lot of different ways you could accomplish the same goal in basketball with different defenses and different offenses and different plays and different ways to try to get guys free and whatnot uh, on the perimeter or down low near near the basket. But I like the strategy of basketball. Um, that's also one of my favorites. And when it's just up and down the floor and teams are just moving up and down, I mean, that that's a lot of fun to call. And football, the strategy behind it's amazing because it's a chess match and you don't even realize how much goes into it. And how these coaches essentially throw away their lives for a few months just to, I mean, work like 20-hour days is absurd. I mean, how the fact they can do that and still – be as sharp as they are. He is pretty amazing, and the athletes are incredible in all these sports, but football too, because they're taking a beating every single day, uh, even sometimes in practice, and still going out and performing is pretty amazing to watch. So uh, I like all of them. I'd say baseball, basketball, football in that order, and uh, we'll see what happens in the future. But it doesn't hurt to have versatility. And I, you know, I think that's a, a goal or a dream would be to call the Olympics. That would be kind of cool. But we'll see what happens.
1: Since it is baseball season, we can hit on that a little bit, and it, it's almost a night and day experience when it comes to the broadcasting aspect of that, just because the games are so different as far as the action goes, and as a fan of baseball, I know that there are a lot of lulls that you have to then fill if you are on the broadcast team to make things interesting, How are you able to find your voice and your rhythm through a baseball game and to be able to provide listeners with interesting tidbits and keep them engrossed in the game when things might not be that exciting?
2: Well, I kind of look at it like I'm just a fan sitting in the stand. And that when I talk into my headset, I'm just talking to somebody next to me. So, I mean, sometimes that involves obviously what's going on. Like, is that pitch a strike or is the ball and what pitch is it? Where was it? Did the batter swing? You know, sometimes where is the infield aligned? Where's the outfield aligned? Obviously, what's the score? Um, But sometimes it's like, what is the weather like? And where is the wind? And how is the grass cut? And what's the sky look like? Just sort of painting the picture for the listener. And other times, you know, kind of in that same vein, just kind of sitting down. You, these players accomplish so many things and they overcome so many things, and a lot of them have amazing backstories. And so I kind of look at it like I'm sitting in the crowd next to somebody and I'm just happy to know this story about a player and I just want to fill them in and hopefully uh, I do believe that people like hearing about people and i I do love numbers and stats and analytics and whatnot. but on the radio and even TV, you can't throw a bunch of numbers at people mm-hmm. because they go in one ear and out the other. and so I like to appeal more to human interest stories. And so, if I just know a player uh, in a background or a cool story or something that's happened in their life, or uh, maybe their parents do something cool, like there's an outfielder for Potomac and his father owned a biohazardous engineering company that cleaned up crime scenes. I mean, that's kind of cool that it's different and unique that I think helps helps fill the mm-hmm. time and makes it interesting for people, even when there's not necessarily something interesting going on. So, that's sort of my philosophy. and. Uh, the other philosophy I have about baseball is it's sort of like life, right? Like, there's it's just kind of normal. like It ebbs and flows like normal, just like life. Like, sometimes you wake up and, you know, you, you go to the dentist and it's just normal routine. And you go to the grocery store and it's just normal life. And then you go to work or whatever it is. But sometimes uh, a crazy thing could happen, be it good or bad. Sometimes you, you meet somebody and they end up being your wife or whatever at the grocery store. Or sometimes you get in an accident on the way to the grocery store. And so that's the way I look at it with baseball. It's, it's so much like life, and you could talk about these things, these players' backgrounds that help fill the time uh, because you're waiting for the, the crazy thing to happen throughout the game. And I think that's what makes baseball so special.
1: We hear about the grind of minor league baseball, and it certainly is. And most people probably don't know how much of a grind it also can be for the media covering it and working for the team. You probably spend almost as much time, if not more time, at the ballpark than the players on the team do. You're on the team bus for these long road trips, staying in hotels, basically being immersed in this team, and you were just talking about how you're able to tell the stories of the players. And I got to experience this firsthand hanging out in the booth with you about a story about one of the players ending up meeting his wife because she was coming to a batting practice standing in the crowd and he decided to just go up and chat with her. And that's something that you might not hear somewhere else from people that don't have the immersion that you're able to have with this particular team, because you are with them on the road and they're familiar with you. But in general, that's not an easy thing to do. It would just be easier to show up an hour before the game, probably get the game notes and just go from there. What's been the hardest part or what was the hardest part for you in, in getting used to the lifestyle of what really is a minor league ball player?
2: Uh, I don't know. That's a good question. Uh, I think every player is different and you can't treat every player the same. So some guys, We have players that love talking to me. I mean, they they don't mind telling their stories and saying hello. And then there's other guys who are super quiet and it takes a lot to get them to tell their stories just because that that's just their nature. And um, everybody's got something and it's just about a pro, you know, it's like anybody you walk up to somebody and you meet them for the first time, they're going to have a different personality. And so uh, I just hope that they appreciate the fact that I want to be a little bit different and, and tell their story. And, Also, the fact that, I mean, you could research them. I mean, Google is a really powerful tool, and maybe somebody else has said something, and uh, you could bring it up. And um, sometimes they they even add in on even more. And like one of our relievers, I knew he was from Michigan State, and then I I asked him why Michigan State one time, and he just said, oh, you know, really cool. Tom Izzo talked to me on my recruiting visit, and I was a walk-on, and he talked to me all about how just because I was a walk-on It didn't mean I couldn't make a difference, and I took that to heart, and obviously he did. He's playing professional baseball now. I mean, just just talking to them and just treating them like normal, like they're just normal people instead of like, uh, you know, like I told you the story about how I thought of Gary Williams as a freshman in college. You can't think of them like they're super-duper celebrities and crazy people, because once you get to know them, they're just normal, just like you. And so when you treat them like they're normal people and you talk to them or just say hello, and make it seem like you care about them, which I obviously do, uh, instead of just going up to them only when to ask for an interview or something of that nature. If you try to talk to them every day and just say, hey, what's up, I think they really appreciate that. Uh, and, and just knowing that you're not using them just for interviews and just to try to get stuff out of them and you try to return the favor and, and be friendly with them and have a good working relationship with them.
1: We brought up Vin Scully earlier, and there's – a lot of jokes and stories that go with his broadcasting career in that a baseball game sort of wove itself around the stories that he would tell and an inning wouldn't end until he was done telling whatever was on his mind. And the game was something that, maybe uh, made its way around whatever Vin Scully had to say. And that's probably one of the more challenging things when it comes to filling the voids of a game is you might get into a story and the ending might be a quick one or it might be something that you don't have a prepared statement ready to go if an ending were to go longer. Is that the biggest juggling act that you have to face throughout a game is being able to almost time yourself with what you want to say and having it also go with the game that you're covering?
2: Yeah, I say that's a challenge. I mean, the general rule I think that I would follow is that you probably don't want to tell one with two outs. Um, you probably you want to be aware of who's coming up and uh, who's pitching and how the game is going. Because if a guy's just mowing guys down in the mound, you're probably not. You probably realize you're not going to have too much time to tell something. Or uh, the other stance: stance if a guy's really struggling, you know you have probably more time because. Uh, especially at this level, it's all a learning experience. So not many guys have the ability, only the really good ones, to turn things around in the middle of a start. And that makes you kind of respect them even more. So yeah, It's just kind of how the game is flowing. And the biggest challenge, I would say, is to make sure that the story doesn't overtake what's going on in the game because you don't want people to be like, well, well okay, this is a nice story, but what the heck is happening in the game right now? And so the biggest story is balancing the two so that one doesn't dominate the other.
1: What is your typical game day preparation like, whether that's home or away, when you're getting ready to cover a game and then what you have to do afterward?
2: Well, right now um, in the minor leagues, you, you kind of do everything. You are the broadcaster and and the media relations guy. And so uh, for me, that involves making the team's game notes, which actually is a great way to prepare because you uh, pretty much have everything going on just by sorting through all the numbers and getting all the trends and stuff like that. So, I mean, that takes like three or four hours right there. And then um, from there today, I, I kind of found something interesting about uh, one of our pictures And I wrote up a little blog post because, again, you're the media guy. And so that sometimes involves doing some writing as well. And I think it also helps my broadcasting just to do a little research and stuff. And so um, other than that, I mean, you're going to get to the ballpark. You've got to, uh, on the road, it's a lot easier because you're responsible for a lot less. You're essentially the guest. And so all you got to do is send in the game notes, and then we'll make a lineup graphic, and we'll have a preview out on the Pelicans blog, and uh, make sure the team's website is ready for the ninth game so people can listen and whatnot uh, from an easy way, and uh, make sure that things are going to be fun on social media, blah, blah, blah. Uh, at home, you got to take care of stat packs and printing out all the game notes and delivering all the rosters everywhere and all the lineups everywhere. And that's a lot more work. But either way, between the game notes and the game, it really involves uh, Googling players, doing some research to see if you can find any background stories. And then from there, um, going down to batting practice, I think is just huge because, again, it builds those relationships with guys. Even if you're not going to ask them for an interview, you still say hello. They still, still see that you're present. Uh, Maybe you pick something up just down in batting practice. You never know. Just hearing something or watching something, a story might unfold. So I like to try to go down there, um, hopefully every day, but if not, minimum once a series, and it's obviously easier on the road. And then uh, on the road, we do an interview for our pregame show before the game, and hopefully you get some good information there, and that helps cover the national anthem for the pregame show. So that way you can go right from there into the broadcast. So uh, it's a combination of things, but It's always reading or writing or talking about baseball, or um, in other sports it's slightly different, but baseball, because it's day-to-day, you're always doing it, and so there could be a lot worse things to do.
1: Do you have a favorite catchphrase, whether that's for a home run or for a count that you might be giving out or something that might be happening throughout the game that you've developed along the way?
2: No, I do not believe in catchphrases because I believe that in the moment you should call it how you feel and what the energy and the vibe of the moment is. And so I don't believe in catchphrases because I think at times it could take away from a big moment.
1: So there's no famous Scott Kornberg home run call (laughs) quite yet.
2: (laughs) Nothing, and I hope there never is. I hope I can always differentiate and uh, just call it in the moment uh, how I feel in the moment.
1: Has there been an interview that sticks out as a favorite? And that could stem all the way back even from your radio days back in Maryland, from someone that you've gotten to talk to, whether that's someone within the media industry or a player or a coach so far.
2: When I was in college, we would have a, like uh, some journalists on our radio show. And my favorite one for sure was Scott Van Pelt. Because we had him on, I think our show was like seven to nine. And at the time, his sports center was not that long after that. And we had him on, and, uh, I mean, he didn't have to come on. First of all, he didn't come on the show at all. Second of all, I mean, he gave us like 35 minutes of his time, and that tells you a lot about Scott Van Pelt and the person that he is. And I just remember uh, we asked him, "Oh, you are going on a sports center soon? This was to open the interview. Like, what are you doing to uh, prepare for it? And he said something like, Oh, I'm just drinking a few beers right now, <laughs> trying to ease off the edge or something like that. And it was hilarious, and he was just so great to us. and He has such a passion for the school, uh, and I would say that's a career highlight for me. Uh, we've done some really cool interviews, I think, with the Pelicans, where we get to play some things on the Cubs pregame show. And we had a really cool story about one of the Pelicans pitchers this year, Justin Steele, who wears number 21 because his brother wore it pitching in junior college in Mississippi, and his dad wore it playing football at Alabama. Uh, He was recruited by Bear Bryant to play wide receiver there, and then the Bear retired, so he played for Ray Perkins. His grandfather wore it at Southern Miss, and his grandfather was assigned the number. And then five years ago or so, they got a package in the mail, and it was a bunch of stuff from his great-grandfather who had passed away in 1950 in combat in the Korean War and it had things like a Purple Heart, and it had a bunch of old like memorabilia, and at the bottom, it had a baseball glove and then a picture, and they had known he had pitched professionally while he was serving in Korea, and in the picture, his number is number 21. And one of the amazing things about that story is uh, Justin's grandfather, or great-grandfather, excuse me, the one who passed away, the original number 21, who just by chance, the rest of the family also wears it, he passed away on July 11th, 1950, and Justin was born on July 11th, 1995. I mean, stuff like that is just so cool. Uh, we had an interview with one of the Pelicans players last year who was from Cuba, and he talked about how he wanted to come to America just for a better life. It wasn't even to play baseball. It was for a better life for he and his family. And uh, he just had a baby in the offseason, a beautiful daughter now. Uh, I mean, that stuff is really cool to to hear. You know, what he overcame growing up, I mean, didn't have a baseball. Didn't have a baseball bat. They would tape rocks together and get a stick and hopefully it wasn't raining because the sticks would be uh, too damp if it was, and that's how they would play baseball. I mean, I mean that stuff, you understand why immigrants would want to come to America uh, when you tell a story like that and it was just amazing because he has his Cuban high school diploma. He's, you know, got a lot of money to play baseball in America and he could just rest on his laurels, but he's working to get his American high school diploma because he says he's American now. I mean, that that's amazing to me. We did another about a reliever who had been in the military and uh, he didn't join the military for somebody else. A friend of his who passed away and uh, kind of an amazing story about how he went back into baseball. He was stationed uh, last place in Florida and he just kind of missed the game. And his mom loved baseball and she developed, a, I think, Alzheimer's. And uh, in her honor, he called a bunch of junior colleges and got a tryout, and suddenly found himself in much better shape. And even though he never pitched except in blowout situations in high school, was suddenly throwing in the mid 90s, and was able to eventually parlay that into a offer to pitch at one of those schools, and then was signed by the Cubs from there. I mean, that stuff is just super duper cool. So you just never know. Uh, those come to mind right off the top of my head. as some of my favorites, and uh, I'm just fortunate that those guys are willing to share. I mean, some of those stories are very difficult to share for obvious reasons and sometimes for not so obvious reasons. And they can keep that in the family or keep that to themselves. And they didn't. Uh, And that's what's an amazing thing is that they're willing to share that. and, And I'm just kind of sitting there listening like, oh, my goodness, some of the things you almost can't believe coming out of their mouths. And I'm just glad that we're able to share that with other people so they can realize what these guys are going through
1: always great stories to find within this game and it's great to also have people like yourself around to be able to tell them and it also doesn't hurt and it was probably no coincidence that the pelicans won the carolina league title in your first (laughs) season covering the team last year so you gotta wear that ring uh, proudly as you would as a senior might when they get their high school rings as well because that's definitely a great thing to be a part of and I'm, i'm sure there's great stories from that year as well and We've talked about the grind of the minor leagues, the grind in sports media in general, when you've basically had to pack your bags at times for your next career path. And there's a lot of long distance relationships with this and long hours. And that could lead a lot of people to doubt and working in this sort of lifestyle and maybe get them down. What keeps you going, if you will, in this industry and motivated to continue pursuing your dream of, say, one day broadcasting the Olympics?
2: Well, yeah, I would say the Olympics would be a different Boy, My number one dream would be to, to broadcast for them in the major leagues. I mean, that's number one. Number two would be at a high-level college. and Olympics is pretty far down into that, but uh, I know if I'm fortunate enough to get asked to do that, I, I'll be pretty lucky, and uh, things will probably turn down pretty well. But, um, you know, that's that's the, the motivation is to always follow your dreams. That's just what people told me, and nothing great is ever accomplished without enthusiasm. I'm a really positive person. Uh, And there's no sense in getting bogged down by the negativity, by all the moving and the traveling. We get paid to watch baseball and football and basketball. I mean, that's just so cool. And, uh, you know, it's not always easy. It's not always that simple. There's always other things you have to deal with and things that pop up and things that sometimes make it uh, more difficult than that, just simply watching the game. But at the the base, that's what it is. And so uh, it's just a way to keep following the dream. And uh, hopefully it'll keep going in there.
1: Well, Scott, thank you so much for your time. This was really just me putting my foot in the door a little bit for when you become a big name personality (laughs) and broadcaster. Maybe you remember me and we could do something like this again. But it was great not only getting to have your curtain peeled back a little bit when you were kind enough to let me in the broadcast booth and watch you in action, but now getting to hear it again about the grind of what a sports broadcaster has to do in minor league baseball and just in general and some of the different experiences you've been able to have. So continued success with that. Hopefully that continues and we could chat again soon.
2: Well, John, you keep moving up as well. And anytime it's always nice to catch up with you. It's nice that we have a mutual friend that kind of put us in touch. So thank you again for the time.
1: Thanks again to Scott for jumping on the show. We'll close out the show with another installment of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Burris. Joe and I have been teammates on the basketball court, sports editors for our college newspaper, and hosts of the prestigious John and Joe Sports Show. And since Joe usually sees more movies in a year than the 52 weeks within it, he now holds the reins to this segment. And don't worry, there aren't any plot spoilers, so you'll still be able to see these films, just with a better idea of what will be in store if you do so. This week, Joe will break down Atomic Blonde, the tale of an undercover M-16 agent who was sent to Berlin during the Cold War to investigate the murder of a fellow agent and recover a missing list of double agents. You can find Joe on Twitter. He's at Duke Misch. that's D-U-K-E-M-I-C-H. You can also read his movies, reviews, previews, and ratings at cupofdashjoe.com. So add a dash after typing out cup of. that's cupof-joe.com. Without further ado, here's this week's edition of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Barice.
0: What's up everybody, I'm Joe Barice and this is
1: Five Minutes in the Film Room.
0: Based off the graphic novel The Coldest City, Atomic Blonde tries to capitalize off the success of John Wick putting Charlize Theron in the lead role as an assassin. Now, when you think of strong female actresses, Theron jumps to the top of the list, so naturally I was pretty excited seeing her casting. The trailer's only added to the hype with the one-take action sequences shot over a mashup of songs, including Kanye West's Black Skinhead. Stories of Theron also circulated about how much effort she put into making the film and getting her stunts down, even chipping a few teeth along the way. Producer and executive producer of John Wick and John Wick Chapter 2, and an uncredited director of the first installment according to IMDB, David Leach takes an official seat in the director's chair for Atomic Blonde. But did it capture the quality of the Keanu Reeves cult classic? Let's go to the take. Atomic Blonde gives you exactly what you would expect as far as the action sequences. I feared the trailer would spoil all the great scenes, and it didn't. It kept the best action sequence for movie audiences alone. It's a one-take sequence on a stairwell, and it's glorious. That scene is the epitome of the time and effort put into the stunt choreography and what makes this movie tick. To the shock of no one, Theron shines in the leading role as Lorraine Broughton, an undercover MI6 agent. The intricacies of not only her fight choreography, but also her acting blew me away. What I enjoy a lot about the Netflix Daredevil series is that Matt Murdock isn't so much better than the people he's fighting that they don't touch him. He gets punched. He bleeds. He limps home. To me that's realistic, and that's exactly what you get with Atomic Blonde. The movie even starts with Theron in an ice bath, brutally bruised and wounded from head to toe. Watching the invincibility of characters while cool in theory actually gets pretty boring when there are no stakes. Theron is in the thick of a mission. Granted, you know she makes it out of because the movie is not shot in chronological order, but at what cost? It's real, and it's the right way to handle action. Longer shots, even one takes so we can see the action happening instead of cutting it to pieces and shaking the camera while adding real stakes like the threat of death, injury, or the failure to save lives. That's art, folks. One of the most underrated actors today, James McAvoy, also puts together another solid performance. Maybe not as good as his work earlier in the year with split, but he shines nonetheless, adding to his impressive movie season. I absolutely praise the film for its action, but we have more to discuss. While the acting, fight choreography, and camera work pump up the film's quality, the plot knocks it back down. Theron's character travels to Berlin right around the time the wall is about to fall, proving the Cold War is still in full effect. The MI6 agent is hunting down a list of operatives that if released would compromise the whole network of agents. Sounds good and basic in theory, but when put to screen it becomes convoluted and confusing. Just when you think it's over, you realize there's still a scene from the trailer you haven't seen yet. Well, that's because the movie is not over. It decides instead to go completely off the rails. The story gets worse because the screenwriters tried to be clever or maybe that was part of the source material. Either way, the last five minutes come out of nowhere and don't fit the rest of the film. The only thing I will give it is Theron's acting leads to the moment at the end. I don't want to spoil it, so I'll just say she's a great actress. Also, to compare it to John Wick, you feel the hardships Keanu Reeves is going through. They don't need much building. His wife died, and then car thieves killed his dog, which his wife left for him so he would have someone left to care for. It's simple. It doesn't require much explanation. We all understand the loss that he goes through and why he wants to take down the entire organization that was responsible. It all culminates in a sequence when the people he is trying to kill tell him it was just a dog. Why go on a killing spree? And his rage boils through and we understand that the dog was going to allow him to grieve properly and keep him away from the life of an assassin. Atomic Blonde, on the other hand, gives you the death of an agent Theron's character knew, but goes nowhere with it. Characters are more so plot devices to make us feel like we should care when it does nothing to show you why Theron should care about this guy in the first place. Therefore, we as an audience are not invested. The movie doesn't sell the vengeance angle and leaves you wondering why the death of someone who supposedly means something to our hero was a focus at all. The bottom line, I like Atomic Blonde and will consider buying it on Blu-ray when it comes out for the beautifully shot action that we only get in a select few films nowadays but the plot most definitely falls apart, especially at the end, keeping it short of a John Wick-caliber film. I'll rank Atomic Blonde as Blake Griffin. It'll hit you with some slick moves and emphatic dunks, but will never live up to the player it's hyped up to be.
1: Sexy. Check! Uh, check please. That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this show and all previous shows over on my website at londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. You can find The Bridge on iTunes by searching for The Bridge Sports Podcast. There you'll find the newest episodes of The Bridge every Friday night. And please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. You can also find The Bridge on Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and by searching for Sports Radio America on the TuneIn app every Wednesday night at 7 and again at 8 Eastern Time. In the next installment of The Bridge, we'll dive into some Major League Baseball, chat about the NBA, circle the wagons of the National Football League, and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports.